You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. The oil price in mid-June was just hovering above $70 a barrel. That's for Brent crude oil. In the first week in September, it went above $90 a barrel, where, as we pre-recorded this podcast, it is still hovering. And I'm no mathematician, but that's close to a 30% move in fairly rapid time. With me to discuss why and also the implications of such a move is Tom Nelson, head of thematic equity at 91 in London. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because last time I spoke to you, I relayed a story about um, an associate of mine who's an oil trader for a living in London. And he said, Lindsay, always go short of a production cut after two or three days because it doesn't usually work or someone usually uh, cheats. This time he'd be licking his wounds, I think. <laughs> That's right, Lindsay, and uh, very nice to speak to you again. Thank you. Um, it's been a very considerable move uh, in crude over the course of the summer. And I have every sympathy with the, uh, the view or the strategy expressed by the trader that you alluded to. But there is also an old adage um, about never bet against Saudi Arabia when they're cutting supply. And I think in this instance, um, that has been borne out. It's now been effectively four or five, depending on how you categorize them, uh, cuts or, um, uh, or or statements of intent by Saudi Arabia since last October. And in the course of doing that, they brought their own production down from around 11 million barrels a day to around 9 million barrels a day. Exports have dropped by about 2 million a day. And of course, Russia, are, although to a smaller degree, are um, alongside them. So they mean business. Uh, they're taking our prices higher. Uh, and so far, what's interesting is uh, it doesn't appear to be having any negative impacts on demand. No, I was going to mention the demand side of the equation, because if you read numerous articles and analyses from the International Energy Agency, they're forecasting record demand for 2023 and going into 2024. Recession, what recession? People are using more oil and at the same time, supply is being crimped. So it's a heady cocktail. It is. And, you know, frankly, it's not a cocktail or an outcome uh, that many people expected. Uh, if we go back two or three years uh, to the immediate aftermath or the emergence from COVID and the first lockdowns uh, with the renewed or, or heightened understanding of the energy transition and what needed to be done. Um, I'm not sure anyone would have been forecasting two successive years in 23 and 24 of in excess of 2 million barrels a day uh, of oil demand increases. Um, but it's where we are. And, and what's intriguing to try and understand, and, and this is what those of us who are investing in the energy industry in its broader sense are always trying to understand, what is the motivation behind this from a Saudi perspective? Um, and um, that's perhaps something we can delve into a little bit more. But for the time being, they are able to effectively rationalize their own supply, take prices higher. It's not having an impact on demand. And so the only area in which they are losing is on market share. Uh, but I would hazard a guess uh, that they have recognised that no one is going to come in and make up that market share. In other words, the market's not going to see a supply response from US shale because, if you like, this stage of the energy transition at which we find ourselves dictates that 
no new supply sources are going to be brought on. So they, I think, have recognised that they can take prices higher. It's not going to impact demand. It's not going to stimulate new supply. And then in the fullness of time, they can bring on their own supply into a stronger market. So at the moment, if you like, the price volume equation for Saudi is working. Is it because they can't or they won't? And I'm talking about the suppliers that could come in and actually thwart uh, the Saudis' ambitions. So the question is, can't or won't? Probably a combination of the two, Lindsay. Um, Of course, the big new oil province uh, of the last 10 to 20 years has been US unconventionals or shale in the US. Um, And we all remember well what happened between 2010 and 2014. So we had four years of $100 oil and incentive price there for US shale. I don't think we're going to see a repeat of that. What we're seeing from the big US shale producers, particularly the independents, so the large EMP companies, is a much higher level of discipline, of cost control. Uh, These companies are now paying dividends. They're reducing their debt. So I don't think we're going to see the supply response to higher oil prices that we did last time around. So I think it's a combination of can't and won't. Uh, But broadly speaking, I think the Saudis and other OPEC members have recognised that the supply response from non-OPEC this time around uh, will not replicate what we saw, uh, if you like, in the latter stages of the last upcycle between 2010 and 14. Would you say that this is the beginning of something more meaningful when it comes to Saudi strategy, or is this a short-term boost and has its risks? Um, only time will tell. I think they they have probably made a calculation based on four or five different factors. I think the first uh, is that taking a 10-year view, the Vision 2030 program as laid out uh, by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia which is effectively a plan to diversify away from oil and gas. Ironically, that plan requires considerable petrodollars uh, to be successfully executed. In other words, they need to raise substantial financial reserves to catalyze that diversification away from oil and gas. Uh, so, you know, this this is consistent with that strategy. Um, there have been rumors about a uh, a sell-down of the Saudi Arabian government's stake in Saudi Aramco, in a national oil company. And of course, that would be, you know, financially uh, made more attractive uh, with higher oil prices. Um, and then I think on the other two parts, which is supply and demand in the market, as we've alluded to, I think they've probably made a calculated estimate about the supply response from the rest of the global oil market to a period of call it 80 to 100 dollar oil prices versus 50 to 70 or 50 to 80 uh, and they've made an estimation that we won't see much for supply response and then on the demand side whether or not it will crimp demand uh, which it doesn't appear to be doing so as is always the case with trying to interpret opec uh, or geopolitical strategy around the oil price very difficult to be too precise but i suspect amongst the reasons outlined above and um, there's a kernel of truth in each of them 
Who's buying the oil? I remember ages ago seeing an article about these huge oil storage facilities on the east coast of China that were being filled up. Have they been drawn down and now they're being replenished? That's one theory. But is it just general demand? Because despite the fact that people want there to be a slowdown or a mild recession because of their predictions, it's simply not happening and people still need oil. Well, there's various different elements to it. I mean, you know, it's plain to see that the electric vehicle revolution is happening. Um, But as we have written about and commented on um, for between five and eight years, these transitions take time. And they take time because you need technological progress, you need changes in consumer behavior, and you need policy intervention. And at the moment, we're seeing some of each of those, but arguably not enough. So I think we can all see that that in slow motion, the electric vehicle is overtaking or is taking market share from internal combustion engines. Um, but it will take time. Energy transitions take decades, not single years. Added to which we've had complications around, uh, if you like, recovering demand post-COVID and post-lockdowns. And then, of course, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So th- there's lots of different things going on here. Uh, we've said for some time that we wouldn't be surprised to see uh, demand for oil and gas higher than some analysts have forecast over the balance of this decade through the 2020s. And of course, we shouldn't be surprised to see the latter stages of, if you like, the age of oil encapsulated by higher and more volatile prices. And that, of course, will act as an incentive for people to move away from oil consumption. Um, And that has always been the strategic rationale for how how we saw the market, that oil prices would be volatile, but higher than many people expected, rather than, if you like, dwindling down to 10 or $20 a barrel. And of course, those higher prices will incentivize switching. Um, So it's going to be that sort of decade And we think from an investment point of view, it actually makes investment in what we would call the incumbent players, um, particularly across energy, mining and agriculture. We think they sit in a very interesting position because there are growing barriers to entry for new supply for all the reasons that we've talked about. But actually demand for these core products remains pretty strong. Yeah, you've sort of started to answer the question that I'm about to give you. And that is, how does this latest move, which has been quite dramatic, as I said, uh, from mid-June to early September, a near 30% rise in the price of Brent crude oil, how does this affect your strategy at 91? Well, it will affect different uh, fund strategies, of course, in different ways. Within the strategy that I co-manage, which is a global natural resources strategy, what we're seeing in the immediate term is a significantly higher level of profitability for oil and gas companies. Now, the criteria that we look for, the characteristics we look for in the oil and gas companies that we will invest in are increasingly stringent, both from an ESG and sustainability point of view, but also financial characteristics. In other words, we really want to find businesses that can generate sustainable levels of free cash flow at oil and gas prices substantially lower than we are today. But of course, a move, as you alluded to, from $70 a barrel up to $90 a barrel makes a very, very meaningful difference to operating cash flow and overall profitability. So 
from our vantage point, we are expecting Q3 results for the oil and gas companies to be pretty strong. We've got oil prices moving higher. We've seen some recovery in European natural gas prices, largely because of the interruption to LNG supply from Australia. And of course, we've also seen very robust refining margins. So that's a long-winded way of saying within our natural resources strategies, we're finding you know, increasingly attractive opportunities within the listed oil and gas companies. And uh, peripheral companies, not the drillers, not the refiners, but outside of that, are there any sort of, uh, sort of lateral thinking targets, if you see what I mean? Yeah, when we look at the, the companies that we own in the strategy, it's actually a more concentrated list of companies um, than it has been for some time. You know, I alluded to the financial characteristics that we look for, but basically we want businesses that can weather heightened or elevated levels of commodity price volatility. We want companies with very strong balance sheets. And of course, we also want companies with very, very clear and credible transition plans. In other words, businesses that are preparing themselves and have got very clear strategies for the next 10 to 20 years as the energy industry undergoes this period of profound change. So actually, when we apply those three lenses, we find that there's an increasingly smaller group of companies across the majors, the independent EMP companies, the service companies, the drillers, the refiners, etc. There's there's actually an increasingly short list of businesses that meet those criteria, but we're very happy to allocate to them in size, particularly when we're able to buy them today on eight, nine, ten times uh, price earnings multiples. So that's what we will continue to do. Tom, thank you very much for your analysis. That's Tom Nelson, Head of Thematic Equity at 91 in London. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.